0: Hi, I'm Judith Dreyer. Thank you for joining me for this podcast series, At the Garden's Gate Presents, The Holistic Nature of Us. My intent is to take us, you and I, into a better understanding of the concepts behind our holistic nature and how that ties directly to the holistic nature of the world around us. How can we connect the dots in practical ways that we are nature and nature is in us I will be featuring authors and educators, practitioners and others whose passion for this earth helps us create bridges. We'll see what's trending, what's relevant to our world today, not just for land use, but to connect the dots between ourselves and nature. It's time for practical action and profound interchange so our natural world is valued once again. Today I'm delighted to introduce you to Gail Reynolds. She is the UConn Master Gardener Coordinator for Middlesex County here in Connecticut. Gail and I met through her radio show, Garden Chat, offered at the ICRV Radio here in Deep River, Connecticut. She is a wealth of knowledge on plant systems, including botany, environmental impacts and concerns, as well as a great resource for all of us involved in the master. Gardener program here in Connecticut so without further ado I'd like to introduce Gail Reynolds here today and we're going to begin our discussion. Uh, Gail, could you tell us about your interest in
1: plant science? Yeah well thanks first I'd like to say Judith thank you so much for having me I really appreciate it but I I studied um, plants both when I was an undergraduate and in graduate school. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I majored in biology. This was in the, the late 1970s, and I concentrated on plants and ecology and evolutionary biology. Um, but at the time, my university didn't have anything. You know, you did biology, and that was it. Uh huh. And. Um, I studied, I took a class on the recommendation of one of my friends a fellow bio major, it's called the Phylogeny of the Vascular Plants and it was a semester long class and I just loved it, it was it went through all the different plant families as they evolved starting with, well of course it talked about lower plants like um mosses and liver warts and then it Moved up to ferns and then gymnosperms, which are your, your, mostly your conifers and then your angiosperms, your flowering plants. And of course, um, moving ahead 40 years, a lot of some, not a lot, but some of the, the, um, evolutionary paths have changed due to uh, the preponderance now of DNA evidence, but it was just, I can just say it was magnificent. Um, the, the professor who was, um, James Rodman, he just did so much research and it was just, it was just wonderful. It changed my life. And I, I also studied some, some wildlife ecology when I was an undergraduate. And then I worked as a chemist for a year, but I came back and I studied, um, terrestrial ecology. It was more outdoors, which is what I really wanted, um, but learning about New England ecosystems was just to to really know what to look for not just at the plants but also at the soil at the input at the inputs and outputs, and you realize what a complex system from the macro level to the very micro level, say the, the microorganisms in the in the soil and I just fell in love with it. And, um, I, for, um, two years, I worked on a project called the New England Adirondack National Natural Landmarks Program. You've probably heard of historic landmarks. Well, this was a project also from the Park Service about the national natural landmarks in New England, most of New England, except what's the coastal plain, which is Cape Cod and the islands and then um, the Adirondacks um, in in New York State, and just looking at the natural systems, both ecologic, geologic, educational, and and actually investigating them and ranking them. Hmm. And it was just, you know, I didn't get paid much, but I got to travel all over New England and just look at, magnificent systems. Unfortunately, the book that I and one of my fellow students and one of my professors put put together, it's over a seven hundred page book. I'm sure it's gathering a lot of dust oh, that's some too. Bad. Park service <laughs> closet someplace, but it just you know, the scale of how things that were affected by human impacts versus the things that really were not were more just more natural, it, it just made such in, an imprint on me, and that's my background, that's how I got my interest, and I actually worked for many, many years in information technology because that paid the bills, and I learned those skills when I was in graduate school. As I also did, I did um, a project on, there was um, a red pine plantation in Patchogue State Forest in Voluntown. And it had, uh, part of it had a controlled burn and the other didn't. And I, I studied the migration of heavy metals hmm. through the, the stuff and into the, into the, the mineral soil to see if the burn had any impact on the migration. It turns out it didn't, but I needed, that was before there were packages that you could use for statistical analysis. So I had to program it all myself. And you know, it was a payable skill, but I always, um, kept my, my, You know, my fingers and things by participating in my land trust and my conservation commission and other, other volunteer opportunities. And now I'm actually being paid, not much, but some to, to work in a field I love. You mean by the, through the Master Gardener program? Yes. 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 Yeah. Because the focus is on science and on natural communities. You know, not so much just, you know, oh, here, this is pretty. Right. I'll just, it doesn't matter if it, you know, I have to like dump a million pounds of fertilizer on it and water it constantly, you know, that's definitely discouraged. You know, we are, our motto is right plant, right place. Right. So I feel very comfortable in the Master Gardener program. Well, I know you're a great resource, that's for
0: sure. So in view of your background and all the places you studied and, and the wonderful opportunity to, to really get in the field, to see how the mountains and the lakes and the streams have all created our topography, number one, but also um, how it's created ecosystems, number two. So let's look at the, the idea of sustainability in this framework. What do you feel is the most important issue facing,
1: um, sustainability today? Well, my thoughts on that, that so many people have no connection to nature. So they don't, they don't know about the natural world. Um, they don't realize all the different relationships among the plants, the microorganisms, the insects, and everything everything else you find in nature the the, the weather the climate the, the wildlife that they don't so they don't have that respect so it doesn't really when things are are changed and developed it it they don't have any sense of loss
0: yeah and if we don't have a sense of loss then we're not really
1: attached to it are we yes i yeah that's that's my thought mm-hmm. so i think if people are instructed Somewhat, they'll they'll realize, and gardening has become more. Sometimes it's a competition almost. Oh, I can grow this, or this is the latest thing. And do you have that? You know, almost um, based on my my relationships with, especially my sisters. You know what they do. Not not really knowing that. Yeah, you know, I put this butterfly bush in, but you know, when I tell them, well. Maybe if you put in a butterfly weed instead, you'd really be helping things out a lot more. Right, but people put the bush um, in because that's, that's
0: the the, the um, perception out there that it because it's called a butterfly bush, it's the best thing in the landscape. When actually, it's it's not, it's
1: not. But and in some in some states, it's even butterfly bush. Buddleia has even been declared an invasive plant, meaning it overtakes. Whatever, wherever it's planted and it spreads uncontrollably and it outcompetes the native plants. And I couldn't, the book that I'd recommend is, um, the Doug Tallamy book. Um, of course I, you know, I'm having a senior moment and I can't remember the the name of it, but bringing nature home, home, that's right. He really, he really shows how, um, you know, planting things that may be pretty. Um, don't necessarily provide the habitat for insects and other pollinators and in that insects are actually good things. They're not things to just be, be squashed and vacuumed up. Well, you know,
0: I um, went to a talk several years ago on the bees and the insects and I came away with a different awareness. Out of the insect population, I think only one out of ten is actually a pest or um Uh, something to be managed differently. Right. But most of them are actually quite beneficial. And again, we don't quite have that awareness because our society wants to keep pushing the pesticides and the, you know, et cetera in our
1: landscape. Yeah. Both that. And I find that having a squeaky, clean suburban or urban upbringing just doesn't introduce people to the, the beneficial aspects of insects in what they actually do.
0: You're right. It doesn't. It doesn't. And we can see many examples of that in some of our more planned communities. Um, you, You drive around and you see a lot of Asian influences, and it's not that the plants from Asia are bad. It's just we have not adapted to them, so therefore we're not providing food for many of our insect populations or nectar for the
1: pollinators. That's right. That's right. That's right, and um, you know it's an education thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that I think that you know, oh, we just have to keep repeating what we think is important and keep repeating it, repeating it, and eventually some of it will stick.
0: Well, um, my Native American ancestors yeah. would say it takes seven generations.
1: Ah, so we have,
0: <laughs> so we have to keep at it, as you said. Well, this mm-hmm. leads us into. One of my focuses, and that is a partnership with nature. And for me, it means be, being respectful, having even a sense of reverence for nature, for the intelligent, um, management and, and I don't know the right word, but it's an intelligent operating system. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah,
1: it's, that's, that's absolutely true. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think in my, you know, what first drove this home for me is when I was in graduate school and we went to the Brantford supply ponds, which are in Brantford. And there had been, well, there were two, two incidents. Um, the first one that really made a big impression of me was that, um, on a, on a budding parcel, a, um, a little, a subdivision homes had been put in, but they didn't really realize the power of water. Or that they were built on the erodible um, soils, the um, the red the reddish soils from the Connecticut Valley Arcos. and within a year or two of the homes being put in, they they had just put like you know um, like culverts that just dumped dumped the water into the woods, which of course was the Br- Brantford supply ponds, which is a natural area. And the water, the force of the water created an, an erosion gully that was over my head. I'm not that tall. I'm five foot three inches, but still that really reinforces the, the power of water, a natural force that people think can just be ignored or controlled. And I think that a natural force such as that and others that maybe aren't as evident should be respected. And the second, this The second item I wanted to point out from that same trip there was one of my professors was doing some, he was doing some plots measuring forest floor material and then the Boy Scouts came in and to do their good deed they raked up all the forest floor material which really, um, screwed up the forest relationships because if you want natural regeneration of plants they require information the leaves that fall the the dead wood that decomposes and all of the, the insects they're, they're in and the microbes that has to stay there and you know it, it gives you thought makes you think well why did they think that this is a natural area why did they think that needed to be that needed to be raked up Well, that's an interesting question because that gets us into
0: uh, maybe a, uh, a statement about our own development, you know. Maybe, right. Maybe we're not as developed as a species as we think we are, because, or, and we've lost our connection so much with nature that we don't even pay attention to the consequences of what we're doing. We want everything to look nice, which is fine. we right. can, We can co-create a beautiful forest with nature, but there has to be some understanding of the relationship of all the parts to the whole, which gets us back to holism, gets us back to our holistic nature. The holistic nature of nature requires um, all these components
1: to be there, as you just beautifully demonstrated, to keep the forest going. Right. And I think that's such a great point, and I think that because there's so much development and sprawl, that a lot of times backyards really are the natural ecosystem, although they're not mostly not natural, that's where nature has to live. And I think people, instead of trying to control everything, should just let nature do its thing and they will be pleasantly surprised yes and with very little management not right.
0: Pre- very surprised. I took a backyard, very typical suburban meadow, yep. about a third of an mm-hmm. acre, and I just let it grow wild. And all I did was I, I did use a lawnmower, but I only put a couple of paths in.
1: Yeah. And
0: the amount of wildlife that came in and other species of plants that came in was amazing. And I have to tell you, my neighbors loved it. They didn't do it, but they loved what I did. And the, so did the kids they were fascinated by it because nobody else had a backyard like this. And it was a sanctuary. I asked them not to kill a spider because it was in their way or not to kill a bee because it landed on them. Just be quiet and the bee will move on. Um, and eventually they did respect that. But it, I think we've lost the understanding of the diversity that we have in our landscape.
1: That's true. And unfortunately, um, you know, a, a meadow... Um, growth like that. Cause I have one as well that I love. Mm-hmm. And I think in some cases, there are like even homeowners association agreements that forbid those. Yes. Or yes. when people do things like that, they are, if the, if the, the place has a blight ordinance, people are considered to be uh, creating blight, which is so far from the truth. But again, it's an education. I know recently um, Maggie Redfern, who's one of the – I think she's the assistant director at the Connecticut College Arboretum, a wonderful place. She lives right in New London and let her, you know, on her small, small urban plot, let it go back to nature. And she was brought, you know, written up for a blight ordinance. But she did go in and explain to the powers that be and they understood and, you know, said – oh, okay, we're educated. I don't think that they have removed the blight ordinance, but at least, you know, they were educated. Yeah,
0: and it's going to take us one garden at a time
1: in yes. some respects to, to make those
0: changes. I know I've seen on the Internet front yard gardens, I think it was in Canada, and yes. they really had to work very diligently to get it through. And the gardens were actually quite lovely. They weren't. A yes. me- they weren't messy and they had vegetables included in there um, and using up their land space to provide food, but it was organic. So mm-hmm. uh, it, you're right. It is all about education. Um, I'm curious, Gail. You've yes. been out in the wild lots lots of times, and you've had a chance to see so many different native
1: plants and native landscapes. What is your favorite? Well, I collectively love native orchids, and I don't know why there's just something about them they're so delicate and there's such a range of them. There are the more common ones, like lady slippers, the pink lady slipper is fairly common and it, it has the beautiful um, the beautiful pink flower and the, the really graceful leaves um and then um there's also rattlesnake plantain is an orchid. You might be familiar with it. If you've been in the woods, it has um green and white leaves, um, which is unusual to have a native variegated plant, but it is. And in late July, early August it puts up spikes of bells. Huh. Um and and orchids are also the most they're one of the most like Highly evolved plant families. But then there are other orchids that aren't as common, and those tend to grow in bogs. And bogs are just, there's nothing, there's just nothing like a bog. Have you ever been in a bog? I don't know. I'm not Uh sure. I have the wonderful pleasure
0: up in Vermont where my herb teacher lives. She discovered in a, in a marshy, boggy area, I'm gonna use the word yeah. boggy area. Yeah, uh, yeah. Lady slippers. And Gail there had to be four hundred of them. Right. It was and one of the beautiful
1: places to see. Yeah. And there were also yellow lady slippers and mm-hmm. there are white lady slippers. They're you know, they're different species, but there were also um there are um there's some bogs around here in Connecticut and not all the places are preserved but you, you'll find things like um, rose pagonia, which is just such a delicate, a delicate plant. It has um, like a, a a lip that goes forward with like it's pink and it has little, little pink, like it's different shades of pink and little, little dots. And there's a little yellow in there and then a, this fringe, this fringe lip. Sorry, my dog just knocked something over, and um it's just dainty and then there's grass pink, which is um it's, Gra- it's grass what pink okay it it's really more purple, but it's just just a lovely plant and it's very uncommon it's not it's not rare, but it's certainly not common hmm and and then there're also um other kinds of orchids called, they're called orchises. And, um, I haven't seen, well, there's some, actually, I have seen some in Connecticut and they, you know, um, the, the spots where they are really not given, given away. But, um, we own property up in northern Vermont and there's a purple fringed orchis. It's the most delicate, like these little, little tiny flowers with fringed lip and they're light purple and then there's a white fringed orchis. and then there are others that aren't there aren't um, don't have a fringe they're just plants are just so striking that if you've seen them the whole bog environment is just um, you have plants in there that are just uncommon like that's where you'll find cranberries growing natively you'll find um, bladder warts Mm -hmm. Mm and which Okay, you'll find that's where you find the insectivorous plants: bladderworts, sundews, and pitcher plants, which are just amazingly adapted. Mm -hmm. And they're flowers; they actually have flowers, and you can see where the insects get trapped. There are there are just um, all sorts of like you have your your swamp milkweed, your Sclepius incarnata will grow there. If you have a peat bog, sometimes what you'll have is you'll have water with a, a mat of peat on top that you can actually walk across, but it's like walking. Remember the old waterbeds where yeah. uh, they used to ripple? Yes. It's like walking on a waterbed. Oh, that's cool. It's, yeah, yeah. So that's,
0: that's. I love orchids. Mm, I can tell. Um, you certainly gave us a few species that we can possibly look up ourselves. I know yes. I tend to walk. Um, I live near a lot of marshland, so I'm going to keep my eyes open for some of these species Um, but before we conclude um, I would like you to give our our listeners today some uh, practical tips Uh, one to three and uh, give us Something practical to do, something they can take home and maybe even think about, um, in New England here, we're in winter, so it's a good time to look at catalogs. It's a good time to think about our gardens for next year. You know, um, what would you like them to go home with today? That's,
1: that's a, such a great point. And, you know, you should, my first point is to look at what's growing in natural areas near you. And you know that those plants are adapted to the, your area things and and it's not like these plants are not beautiful like they're all sorts of dogwoods and i was just thinking today because we got a few inches of snow you probably did too today right did yeah, you get a few inches we did it was, we got some snow it's lovely nice powdery snow and i was looking at my red twig dogwood which is a nice native plant um, the dogwoods have been changed. It's known as Cornus sericea, although dogwoods have been moved to another genus, but Cornus sericea works. And the twigs are red, and it just looks so beautiful against the snow. And then Ilex verticillata, which is winterberry holly. It's a deciduous holly that's very common here, and it's very nondescript in this in this. Summer. The flowers are little tiny things that you don't even notice, but now it has beautiful red berries. And um, I know that that's quite a contrast during the snow. And Gail, it's not. Yes,
0: just repeat that name again. I always tell my uh, readers that knowing the common name is good, but knowing the botanical name is great. Right.
1: So, so, so that that berry is ilex. Ilex. Verticillata. Okay. B E R T I C I L A T A, I believe it is. Okay. And winterberry holly. Mm hmm. And, um, it's not the first thing that the birds will eat, but I know there have been times when we've had like a few feet of snow and, and my shrub is just like the berries are just on top of the snow. And then I've seen bluebirds come and eat them and it's just, you know, it's great to know that you're helping. Helping such a lovely bird like a bluebird when the conditions for them aren't, you know, aren't that easy. Right. There's so much snow around and that's a food source for them. So sure. you can think of winter interest, but then you can also think like there are so many, so many plants, especially I'm thinking of shrubs that are just really gorgeous. There are, um, there's, um, pinkster flower. It's called azalea, but it's really rhododendron. That's one of the first plants to flower. In the mm-hmm. spring, flowers mm-hmm. before Mount Laurel. And if you just looked at it, you might think it's Mount Laurel, but the flower is really a rhododendron flower where it's lipped and it has these huge stamens and it's quite, quite pretty and it grows along forest edges. Mm-hmm. And then of course there's Mount Laurel, our state flower. There are, um, spice bush, which is another lovely, um, shrub. That that's one of the first flower. It's one of the first shrubs to flower, usually like end of April. It has little yellow flowers. Has the leaves have a lovely smell? Also, not really. It's more of a tree, but early in the season there's shad bush or shad blow or June blow. Has a lot of names: Juneberry, serviceberry. There's, mm. the, there are a lot of them. They're hard to tell apart, but the genus is Amelanchier. A m a l a n c h i e r, and those flower before everything else nice white flowers you know if you didn't know what they were you might just think they were black cherries but they're not and those are are lovely and they produce um, red berries um, that's great then, yeah then like if you get also like in August when it's really hot and dry then you should plant clethra on the folia it's called sweet pepper bush or summer sweet because that that grows I mean that flowers in August. Just like the roses. Yeah. Summer sweet, so it
0: flowers in August. Yeah, we're always looking to keep a continuous color, aren't we, in our landscape?
1: Yeah, a lot of people like flowers. You know, the flowering, the actual flower of the plant. So Mm -hmm. if you'd like that, that's one way to do it. There are native plants that that flower, you know, up until um, uh, um, witch hazel, Hamamelis virginiana, that flowers... October into November. It has these weird yellow flowers. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's great. Okay, so what's point number two? Uh, Point number two is don't Mm over-fertilize. Really, have your soil tested before before you just – you don't necessarily have to dump things in your soil because what happens is that you can put – you know, you can – you can listen to the commercials and put lots of fertilizer. And what what the nitrogen fertilizer really does is it promotes vegetative growth, green growth, and it just can't be all used when it's dumped in such um, copious amounts all at one time. So when it rains or when you water, it gets washed away and it ends up in, in the um, the water supply, the groundwater supply and the surface water supply, and it's not good those aquatic ecosystems it really puts them out of balance right and I know for myself
0: as a master gardener um, I try to encourage people to get their soil tested and not to over fertilize and isn't there kind of a saying in the program
1: you know less is more yes and actually you can if you leave your grass clippings in place that's really all the nitrogen you need uh, for your if you grow grass it really is mm-hmm if you have like a, one of the, those mowers that shreds them up, or if you just leave them there. And then also, um, the same thing about lime. You don't necessarily need to add that. In fact, some, some plants don't like, lime raises the pH, and some plants like blueberries and rhododendrons, they don't like high p, high pH, and they won't grow in it. It, it, they can't, it causes the nutrients they need to not be available to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Those are really yeah. good good
1: reminders. Okay, what's number three? So, and the third thing, this is a little bit um, a little bit more um, arcane, but I think that people should realize that the the plants, the ecosystems we have around here, really evolved since since the the last ice age, which has been like so such a long time ago it's not like it was last year or a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago it was really long 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 ago so if you think about that that passage of time and how long it took for those things to just um, get to a point where they're living in harmony shall we say although it's not it's not Like a tight, rigid type equilibrium. It's something like there's things are always, always changing, Mm -hmm. but on a really slow pace. And I think that just that acknowledgement of time and not to expect things to happen overnight or to, or like change, actually changes that we make overnight can have drastic adverse impacts on our natural ecosystems. Well you know, Gail, I think yes. that's the whole point of what I'm
0: trying to get across to our listeners and, and into the world is that we want everything yesterday. We have Please. we have to work twenty four seven to in order to get something now, 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 now. Yet nature tells a different story nature tells us that things are changing but we have to pay attention to how and when they do change you know uh, a golden rod is going to change differently from a rose but yet they live in harmony as neighbors and that's right you know so i I really like that you stress that point here for our listeners i think that's wonderful because that's what i'm trying to get across too
1: Right, and you know, just like short-term gratification, you know, I know like a lot of the self-help books say like, forego that. And I'm just saying, you know, Give it a rest for ecological reasons. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, well,
0: um, I know that our time is ending yeah. here, and I'm okay. really, really grateful and delighted that you could share some of your wisdom. I'd love to have you come back. We'll pick another topic. Um, but I know that you're very involved with the Master Gardener program. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with uh, for yourself or
1: for the program? Well, I would, I would love... Um, to, to say a little bit about the Master Gardener Program. Um, it's a science-based program that uh, it has a classroom that is, I think, 16 weeks long and then projects after that. And it, you're really helping the public spread the word about good gardening practices that are based on science. And, you, you know, once people take it, they're usually addicted for... The rest of their lives and um, we also have advanced Master Gardener classes Judith you've you've taught some of those where we give our our students and the public because um, anybody can take the advanced Master Gardener classes um, insight into other topics and um, our our website is edu, and please check it out and when you're looking through your catalogs while we have snow on the ground, um, you should keep an eye open for native plants and native plant sales, and um I think that, you know, when you come, when you start to, to stock up for the spring, you know, just think about what we talked about today about the fertilizer, about the native plants. Um,
0: That's great. The other thing I want to mention about the
1: the Master Gardener
0: program, because some of our listeners may not be from Connecticut, but it's it's a nationwide program offered by the state universities. So I highly recommend that our listeners who are interested in learning more, and uh, believe me, people have a variety of interests. I can only tell you from my own experience, I've met some really terrific people who are passionate about their particular interest in gardening. Whether it's becoming a member of the Iris Society or the Butterfly Society or growing vegetables, there's such a variety of ways to meet people and to become
1: more informed through the the Master Gardener program. That's absolutely right. And also to educate people, educate the public. Yes, exactly. You never have enough of that. Well, Gail, what I'm going to say is thank you so
0: much for joining us. Um, I hope my listeners feel as inspired as I do by you, your talk, your your expertise, and your very practical advice. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yes, my delight, uh, definitely. So what I want to say is I'm going to conclude this podcast by reminding all of you that I'm the author of At the Garden Skate book and blog. My book, At the Garden Skate, is available through my website. Go to judithdryer.com, or you can find it on Amazon, Nook, Kobe, Indigo, as well as Ingram uh, Ingram Distribution. You can visit my website for a replay of this podcast, and it will be on other platforms. So thank you again, everyone. Have a good day.